We're people burdened by guilt. Much as we would tell ourselves that there is no right and wrong, that there's no accountability, we still have within us a God-given conscience, don't we? And the greatest longing of the human heart is actually still today to be forgiven, to have release from that guilt, to be set free. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you're with us as we continue our series in the presence of the King. And Jonathan, I think you so rightly identified that a lot of us do carry around guilt and baggage and shame. And we wonder if God could ever forgive us for what we have done. And it sounds like today's message is going to be one of encouragement and hope. Well, I think we're going to see and discover in a fresh way that Jesus is the one who uniquely is able to satisfy the longings of the human heart. The Gospels consistently present Jesus to us as the one who is able to satisfy in in a way that no one else can and nothing else can. We see it in a beautiful way in the imagery of the miracle that we're going to consider today, but it, it points us to this spiritual truth that Jesus can meet the needs of the human heart, not superficial needs, not merely emotional needs, but the need actually for forgiveness the need to be made right with God, the, the need to have spiritual wholeness and hope. And, and that's what Jesus Christ can give. And if you're someone who is aware of that need, aware of a burdened heart, aware of a longing of soul, I, I hope you'll listen today and I hope you'll find in Jesus Christ all that you need and more. Well, we hope you'll continue to listen. I hope you'll grab your Bible and join us in Matthew 14 as we begin a message called The Lord Who Satisfies. Here is Jonathan. The reaction of our world, of our culture, and of our society to Jesus Christ is often negative, is sometimes hostile. And as you and I observe that dynamic around us, and we don't have to look too far to see it, of course, it raises qualms and questions for us. It may raise some particular questions for you. You're wondering at the present time whether to follow Jesus Christ. It raises the most basic question of all. Is it actually worth following Jesus? Are the doubters and the detractors actually right? Do those who reject Jesus and his message see see through him and recognize a reality of emptiness and deception? Is the culture's scorn for Jesus a compelling indication actually that he's, he's not worth following is best avoided? Does Jesus really have anything of worth to offer? Is there benefit for me in following him? Or or is it all emptiness, smoke and mirrors? That's an important question for you to grapple with today, and I hope you'll grapple with it. For us who follow Jesus, we're constantly prompted to ask, in the the face of so much resistance and skepticism and outright hostility to him, we're prompted to ask, well, what happens next? Where do we go from here? And how does the story continue? A major study on Christianity in America by the Pew Research Center paints a very bleak picture of the prospects of church decline in the United States over the coming years. It was just published in recent days. Christianity Today summarizes the findings of the study in these terms, and I'll quote from it. They say, people are giving up on Christianity They will continue to do so, and if you are trying to predict the future religious landscape in America, according to Pew, the question is not whether Christianity will decline, it's how fast and how far. It seems the only way now is down. 
Is, is that it? Is that all that remains? Continued rejection and decline. Now, these are very significant questions for us all, and they are the very questions actually, in essence, that hang in the balance as we re-enter the story of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. Back at the end of chapter 13, you may remember Jesus had returned to his hometown of Nazareth, and he had received that most discouraging reception. He went and taught in the synagogues there, and the people, they, they took offense at him. The local people recognized him as as one of their own, and they, they found his teaching and they found his mighty works very, very hard to accept. They, they couldn't see where all this came from. They showed him no honor. We are told that they were scandalized by him. And the chapter ends on that very, very downbeat note of verse 58, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It was a very discouraging homecoming for Jesus. And we might well think to ourselves, you know, if Jesus' own people, the people from his own community who, who knew the family, who, who watched him grow up, if they will not welcome him and they will not receive him, then who will welcome him and who will receive him? The story seems to kind of go further south in chapter 14. Herod the Tetrarch links Jesus to John the Baptist in his own thinking, and he starts asking questions about him of his servants. This is a very dangerous path for Jesus. Because, of course, Herod was the man who had had John beheaded on little more than a whim. When Herod heard about Jesus and his reputation as a teacher and a healer and so on, he begins to wonder if Jesus is actually John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. Maybe he's wondering if his murder of John wasn't sufficiently brutal, if the job wasn't really finished. Well, Jesus, he's clearly sobered by all this. And our passage today opens with those words of quiet withdrawal. Verse 15, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Maybe this is the end of the road for Jesus in his public ministry. Maybe like the defeated politician who knows that, you know, the game is over, all hope is lost, and so he retreats into quiet, private life. Maybe Jesus is going to slip into the background, never now to reappear. What happens now? Where do we go from here? when Jesus is rejected and scorned, when the reception is cool toward him and is worse than cool, how does the story now unfold? What will the rejected Jesus do next? Well, as we follow the flow of the story, here's the first thing we see. The rejected Jesus will draw crowds. That's what happens next. Verse 13 again. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there into a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. There had been this great crowd at the start of chapter 13. There were so many gathered to hear Jesus at the shore of the Sea of Galilee that he had to get onto a boat and, and remove himself from shore to be able to speak to them all. But then came that profound rejection at Galilee. The atmosphere seemed to shift. Now, Jesus himself, he's not chasing fame. He's not seeking out the crowd. He's not trying to repair his public image, not at all. He doesn't get into all that. No, he withdraws to a desolate place by himself. He goes away, no doubt, to reflect and to be quiet, to wait upon the Father. No jostling, no panicking, no strategizing, actually. But what happens next is very, very telling. The crowds hear that Jesus has gone to this quiet place. They catch wind of it. Perhaps just one person saw him. 
Maybe a lone shepherd on the hillside saw this lonely figure. Maybe a fisherman in his own boat sees Jesus on the water. We don't know, but someone saw him. Someone told another person who told someone else, and soon the crowd knows, and they're gathering soon. They're on the move, and they come to him. They follow him on foot from the towns we read. They didn't just download the podcasts or turn on the TV for the latest episode. They didn't jump in their comfortable SUV and take the short drive to the air-conditioned church building. No, they put on their sandals and they walked the dusty road, not from the local village, but no, we're told from the towns of the region. Presumably some came quite a distance on foot, but they came, not just one or two or three, not a dozen, not a hundred. Crowds came, thousands of them. They came to hear this rejected man who was off in a boat because he had been so roundly rejected in his hometown. It's a brief summary there in verse 13, but it speaks of a remarkable and quite a dramatic turnaround. And it gives us in a window, I think, into an important truth. Many will reject the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be ready for that. Many will take offense at him. Many will hate him. But despite all the scorn and the rejection that the world can muster and that Satan himself can incite, there will be those, and not just one or two, not just a handful, there will be many who flock to Jesus. There will be many who hunger for the truth that he alone can speak, who yearn for the grace that he alone can give, who hunger for the food that he alone can provide, who need the healing touch that he alone can offer. Verse 13 is not an exception in the Gospel of Matthew, in the story of the Bible. This is what happens again and again and again. It's actually a pattern when it comes to Jesus and his ministry. Most dramatically, we see it, don't we, at the cross and in the resurrection. Crowds have followed Jesus. Thousands upon thousands have flocked to hear him and to receive his healing touch over the course of his earthly ministry. But as he approaches the cross, he does so alone, scorned, abandoned, rejected, and it looks like the end. But what happens? What takes place? He rises from the dead. The the gospel goes out. The apostles preach. The church is built. Yes, there are ups and downs. Yes, there is opposition and even persecution, but there is explosive growth. Of course, we don't know how many Christians there are in the world today. Only the Lord knows the precise number, but I understand that about one-third of the world's population claims some kind of Christian faith. That's well over two billion people who name the name of Jesus Christ. From the sheer isolation of the cross to billions and billions of followers down through the centuries, the world over, yes, many reject him. Yes, our culture here in the wealthy and cynical and some might say decadent West may pour scorn on his message. Yes, our neighbors may refuse to listen. Our friends may turn a deaf ear, but make no mistake. There is a deep-seated hunger for the truth that he speaks, for the grace that he gives, for the healing touch of his hand. Even today, the dynamic that we see at play in verse 13 is still at play. The rejected Jesus will draw a crowd. And you know, it is no surprise that he draws a crowd. We find that Jesus Christ gives what no one else can give. You and I, we long for truth. Our world is so very, very confused, so lost. With each passing day now, we are called upon to define and redefine ourselves and our humanity. We are called upon to do a job that no mere creature can ever do. 
We are bombarded with this message that there is no truth, there are no boundaries, nothing is defined, nothing is fixed, and frankly, I think we are exhausted with it. Frankly, I think our society is exhausted with it. We're lost in this wilderness of confusion, and we long, don't we, for something that is fixed and sure and real. We need an anchor. We need a harbor in the storm. And Jesus, who is the truth, speaks the truth, and people are hungry for that truth. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called The Lord Who Satisfies. It's part of our series in the presence of the King. And we're going to pause right here, but we'll get back to this message in just a moment. You know, while we're spending some time in the book of Matthew right now, after Jesus does ascend into heaven, we see the Holy Spirit come and he empowers God's people to be able to fulfill the command of Jesus to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. This account is found in the book of Acts, and it is a fast-paced section of the Bible. But the question then is, what does that mean for you and for me today? How do we apply this to our lives? David Cook is a well-beloved Bible teacher, and he walks us through the book of Acts in 50 devotions, showing us the power of the Spirit at work in God's people to build his church. Jonathan has picked this book as our thank you gift to you as you support the ministry with a financial gift of any amount this month. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. Again, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org and our phone number is 833-998-7884. Well, let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. We're people burdened by guilt. Much as we would tell ourselves, you know, there's no right or wrong, there's no accountability, in a world where we just find new socially acceptable labels for the most appalling sins, we still have within us a God-given conscience. And and the reality of our sin, the burden of our guilt, it can be a tremendous thing. Much as many would deny it, so many around us actually walk about this world carrying a crushing burden of guilt. And the greatest longing of the human heart is still the longing to be forgiven, to have release from that guilt, to be set free, And Jesus, he proclaims the forgiveness of sin through his death in our place at the cross. It's the offer we so desperately need. It's the invitation we so long to receive. And there's a hunger and there's a hearing. Perhaps most fundamentally of all, we're all created in the image of God. We are made to know him and to be known by him. Augustine's oft-repeated prayer is so true. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so when God, the Son, God incarnate, comes and he invites us to receive him, to know him, to walk with him, to receive his life by his Spirit, when he does that, he speaks to the very core of our being and he calls us to something that we know is right and wholesome and necessary, something for which you and I were made in the first place. Jesus addresses hearts that are restless for the God who made them and he calls people home. He calls people to himself and there's a resonance And there is a hearing, there's a crowd ready to respond. Two implications briefly of this. One, if you would come to Jesus Christ, if if you feel drawn to him in your own spirit, if the truth is attractive to you, if the offer of forgiveness actually delights your heart as you hear it, if the invitation to know God and to be known by him meets the desire of your soul, if that's what's going on, here's the thing, don't let the naysayers put you off. Don't feel that you will be in a minority of one. You are 
actually with the crowds who have come and the crowds who will come. The naysayers will be put to shame in a day yet to come. You just ignore them and you come to him. Two, if you look at the naysayers and the skeptics and the enemies of the cross and you feel discouraged and you feel that hope is lost, you feel that you know, your evangelistic efforts, meager as they are, they're pretty hopeless. If you feel that your ministry involvements are pretty meaningless and going nowhere, be encouraged today. Look at the crowds in verse 13. Look at the people alongside you today listening to the word of Jesus. Look at the masses, the millions and the billions in the world today who name the name of Jesus Christ and be encouraged. Keep going. Don't give up serving Jesus and making him known. The rejected Jesus will draw a crowd. Next, the rejected Jesus will have compassion, verse 14. Notice it there with me. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. People in the so-called uh, caring professions, you know, doctors, nurses, teachers, psychologists, pastors, and others, people in such professions can get what is, I understand, called compassion fatigue. That is, they can, they can lose emotional energy from meeting the needs of others, can get kind of burnt out with that. I, I think it, it can happen all the more readily where there's a lack of reception, a rejection of the care that's offered, a spurning of the help, an angry reaction from those they're, they're trying to serve. Those who work in such professions know something of these things. Now, it would not be unreasonable to imagine that Jesus' supply, his well of care and compassion for people must be running a little dry at this point in his ministry. He's been, he's been pouring himself out in care for others. He's been teaching his heart out. He has been ministering to the needy. He has been helping the outcast and the sick, the oppressed and the unclean. And now he's had this major sort of kick in the teeth. His old friends and his neighbors from Nazareth have roundly rejected him. They've taken offense at him. They've practically driven him out of town. Jesus has been reminded of the way in which a former servant and prophet of God was treated, decapitation, head on a platter. And we, we might reason, you know, this would be enough, I think for anyone, this would be enough to prompt Jesus to sort of hang up his shingle as a teacher as a healer, even a savior, maybe time to go back to carpentry, to retire from ministry, to return to his father in the heavenlies. Surely he would be out of compassion, out of patience, out of care. But when the crowds seek him out, when he sees large numbers of sick and needy and hungry people approaching him, coming to him, his reaction is not to flee. It is not to be dismissive, not to be short-tempered, not to be left alone and to turn his back. No, his immediate reaction of heart is one of compassion. And I, here I think we are being given a window into the heart of Jesus Christ, a window into the very heart of God. And as we gaze through that window together, here's what we see. We see a heart with depths of compassion that you and I cannot fathom and could never plumb. As believers, you and I look out on a world that is so often so turned against the Lord Jesus Christ, so full of rejection, of him, and it's easy to wonder, you know, has God now, has he closed the door on this world? Does he have it in him to care, to love these people, to open wide his arms once more to them? But the Jesus we see here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he has compassion abounding. He's not been rejected into resentment or spurned to the point of cynicism. And it's so beautiful, isn't it, what he does for them? Notice it there in verse 15, he healed their sick. We see from the story that he's going to deal with their hunger in a moment. There's more compassionate help that is yet to come. 
But immediately he looks upon the sick and upon the diseased and he heals them. It's recorded so simply, we might actually just kind of skim over it very quickly, but just think on that for a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ looks on his oppressed people, people created by him, men and women, boys and girls, whose bodies are broken because of the fall and due to sin, who are weighed down by disease, no doubt whose illness for some has curtailed their way of life, others whose disease is truly debilitating, still others whose sickness is terminal, people maimed by accident, others with unknown viruses and infections for which there is no treatment, some with heart disease, some who have suffered strokes, others with cancer, children perhaps with genetic disorders. We can only imagine who there might have been in that crowd that day. And Jesus, having, having already given so much, now buffeted by rejection and discouragement, he doesn't turn away from them in emotional fatigue. No, he looks on them in compassion. He sees the depths of their pain, their fear, their suffering, the sheer brokenness of their situation, and he heals them. You may be here among us, you may be listening today because you know that you need the healing touch of Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. And I'm not talking here about physical disease, although I know there will be many who are facing illness at the present time. I'm talking about your heart, and I'm talking about your soul. You know that things are not right between you and the God who made you. You have that weight of guilt upon your conscience. You know that experience because it is your experience today. You have little hope for the future, maybe no hope at all. All you see before you is despair. And you sense that Jesus could bring you healing. But you wonder, will his compassion reach me? Will his grace extend to me? Here's what we see in the events by the Sea of Galilee. We see the Jesus who has been so buffeted and rejected. We see him open his heart to the needy. We see him pour out his compassion. We see him freely heal. And the Jesus of this story, the Jesus of history, the Jesus we encounter here in Matthew 14 is the Jesus we meet today. See, he hasn't changed. He is the very same if you come to him, if you seek him out as the crowds sought him, you will not find him jaded or hardened of heart, but you will find him full of compassion. Will you come to him? Will you receive his healing touch? Will you receive his forgiveness and his grace? It's easy for us who serve Jesus Christ to grow rather jaded, even cynical, to tire of the world's scorn, it's easy, actually, for us to pull up the drawbridge of our own heart and say, you know, I'm not going to bother anymore. And maybe that's how you're feeling. The, the conversations at work, they have been so difficult and so discouraging. The pleas to your loved ones issued over years and years and decades and decades, they have gone unheeded. The invitations to friends to come and hear, to engage and respond, they're met now with irritation and with anger. And you're feeling as though, you know, it's just time to quit. I'm tired to retreat into a quiet and a privatized faith, to avoid the hurt and the disappointment. But you know, that is just not the heart of Jesus Christ. He has compassion on the needy. And as his own people, we are to share that same heart despite every discouragement, despite every rejection we face. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth and a message called The Lord Who Satisfies. And if you miss any broadcast in our series in the presence of the King, come and listen online. Our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. 
Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported ministry. It is your generosity that keeps Jonathan's teaching on this station. And as you give a financial gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you something called Acts to the Ends of the Earth. It's by David Cook. And Jonathan, why did you pick this book? Well, Steve, I trust that this little book would be a real help and encouragement to those who receive it in terms of developing and maintaining the habit of daily Bible reading. This is something we talk about not infrequently on the program, the great help that it is for us to be turning to the Word of God daily. And sometimes it is a real help to us to have some resources that sort of come alongside us in our Bible reading to prompt us to look freshly at the text of Scripture and to have some good questions and some prompts for prayer. And this resource, this set of undated daily devotions in the book of Acts, I think will be a real help and a real encouragement within that. Well, it is called Acts to the Ends of the Earth, and we would love to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thank you for your financial support. You can find out more or give online when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.